Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. From Advanced Local and Meadowlark Media, I'm Sarah Gannam. This is the mayor of Maple Avenue. Chapter 6. By the summer of 2018, after another failed attempt at rehab, Sean voluntarily exited the Alpha House. He was wandering the streets of Pittsburgh alone. And at this point, he was nine years into his battle with drugs. And where did he go? Well, he was walking around with um, a big garbage bag full of his stuff. Was the parole officer, though, going to be okay with him just walking around on the street with no place to live? I mean, No, he wanted me to try to find him. He, he said, if we can find him, Marian, I'll help you get him in somewhere else. Sean's probation and parole officer, Dave Morante, could have easily thrown him back in jail for walking out of the Alpha House. But he was extra patient, knowing that even though Sean was making bad decisions, he also wasn't getting the help that he really needed. You didn't send him back, right? Like you? No, I, I held him. Yeah. I tried to hold him as long as I could. Um, my supervisor actually, after that, told me to send him back. By send him back, what he means is transfer his case from Pittsburgh to Blair County, where the probation originated. I went in to talk to him at length. And was like, listen, I've had really good rapport with his mom, trying to help the kid. If he goes back to Blair County, between the, all the paperwork getting sent back and forth, no one from Blair County is going to contact this kid for 60 days. And it's going to be 30 to 60 days, probably. I mean, it's going to be downhill. She's going to have no help because she's going to call and beat their ear in. And maybe, if anything, if they do anything, they're just going to issue a warrant for him. And that's not going to do anything. They're going to lodge him in jail. That might slow him down, but it's not going to get the help he needs. Marianne knew she was working on borrowed time, thanks to Dave Morante, but calls from Sean were few and far between. And when he did call... He just seemed too damn calm to me. In one conversation, Sean even apologized for the way that he reacted to the news about his brother's wedding. And he said, I'm sorry that I said those things. Josh is right, and that really hurt me, because he's right. I don't know what my life is going to be, and I am scared. And I want to be here. And it hurts me that I hurt you guys all in this way and you think that way. He certainly maintains a self-awareness throughout a lot of this that you don't necessarily expect, right? But he usually comes around to being aware of what this is doing to the rest of the family. Oh, completely. I think so. What Sean was doing to the rest of his family was pulling them into his chaos. It might have been obvious to anyone who encountered Sean during this time that he was struggling. But let's not forget that Marianne and Mike were also nine years deep into Sean's battle with drugs. Nine years of worry, of sleepless nights, of arguments and negotiations. 
Chasing Sean all over Pennsylvania had truly changed her and her way of life. And it was only getting worse. There was one particularly stressful night where Sean told his parents that he slept on a park bench. I was like, I'm getting up in the morning and I'm going to Pittsburgh and I'm going to find him. This was Father's Day. On Father's Day. Day. Yeah, on Father's Day. You and Mike and the dog get in the car and your plan is just to go to Pittsburgh and hang out and hope that he calls or drive around and try to find him. Yeah, because I didn't really have a plan. In my mind, I knew that he would, uh, I just kept saying he's going to call me. Dave, his probation officer, is also trying to help because he's not sure how much longer he can stall. I tried to hold him as long as I could, and I had lost that fight with my supervisor and stuff. And I had to send the case back, but I was still talking to her as far as, like, if I see him in the Pittsburgh area, we drive around all day, or if you hear he's somewhere, I'll drive over and try to talk to him. I'll do whatever I can to help. Sean did call, and Marianne was able to convince him to meet them. He wouldn't give us the exact you know, address of the place he was at. He, it was it was close, but we got close and then he started walking and we saw him and he, he got in the car and, you know, he looked like hell. He smelt and just reeked of alcohol big time. And he had been drinking and partying all night. He said just booze, but I, I don't know for sure, but you could smell it on him big time. He reeked of it. He was in pretty bad shape. He was in the back seat kind of falling asleep, you know. And I said, what were you doing? And he said, hey, I didn't have anywhere to go. I told you, I had nowhere to stay. And I met these people. And they saw me walking around. They said I could hang with them. And so they bought me drinks all night. I don't know who they were. That weekend, Marianne had begun to arrange for Sean to check into a rehab facility called Conowago. It's in Indiana, Pennsylvania. She had everything set to have Sean picked up the next morning. It wasn't close enough to anyone else's home for Sean to stay the night, but the facility agreed to get him at a nearby hotel. So Marianne needed to get him a room and food to get him through the night. And while those things may seem like simple tasks, she explained to me how everything is more complex when you're dealing with someone with an addiction. I had Michael walk down, there was a Dairy Queen like two doors over. I said, go down and get a gift card for something to eat. We had taken him water. We got him some bottled water and stuff and and set him up in the hotel. The reason that you're doing things the way you are, you're buying a gift card for food because you don't want to give him cash because he won't spend it on food. He'll spend it on drugs. You're buying bottled water because you have to give him the thing you want him to have. You can't trust him just with money. No, no, we would have never given him money. And when we did all this stuff, Michael's looking at me and we had the dog. Of course, that wasn't easy either. And he looked beat, you know, all of us were. And I'll never forget, Sean was out smoking. Michael got him a pack of cigarettes and he was standing under like the canopy there. And we were getting ready to leave. And he said, I said something to Sean about being Father's Day. And he just looked at him and he said, yeah, I know, I ruined another one, didn't I? I said, I said, Sean, do you ever, do you ever think to yourself, like, why am I even trying? Do you ever think that in the back of your mind, do you ever feel like that you think that no matter what I do, that it's just not going to work? I'm not going to be able to do this. And... 
He looked at me and said, yeah, Dad, sometimes I do. And he just gave me a hug. And that was, uh, that was a really, really, really hard time for me when he did that because I could, I could just see in his eyes the pain and the hurt. He knew what he was doing to us, how much he was hurting us. But on the other hand, he also knew that he couldn't help himself. So I could see the pain in his eyes and, and he knew that. He knew that. So that, that, that was tough. I knew he was exhausted because he'd probably been up drinking all night long with these people and whatever else. So we left. I called later and he wasn't answering. I was calling in the room and he wasn't answering. We were both so panicked because we thought, did we leave him in this hotel and he's got somebody coming there and he's using and he's dead and we're not going to know it? As a kid, Sean had been diagnosed with myclonic jerks. It's a seizure disorder. And for Sean, it was something that was easily managed by medication and often triggered by his abuse of drugs. You know, that night, it was just pure panic for me because he wouldn't answer. I finally convinced uh, a desk guy that he had to go back because of his seizure. I just, I just used the seizure disorder because I was scared to death at something, you know? And I said, I, I don't care if you have to use the key to get in there, but I need you to see that he's okay. And the guy eventually did it. So he goes in and what, ha- like, what happened? He said he yelled and he got close enough and then Sean did jump up. And he said, you know, and then Sean talked to us and he goes, what the hell were you doing? And I said, I'm sorry, but you didn't answer. He said, I'm sleeping. I said, it doesn't matter. We have to know that you're okay. And so we just had to try to sleep ourselves and hope for the best the next day and that night. But against all hope, there was more disappointment. Two hours before Sean was to be picked up to go to the Conowago facility, they called to say they couldn't accept his insurance. It was some mix-up that had to do with his move from the Pittsburgh area to Blair County. It only took a few phone calls to transfer him to a new place. And in a vacuum, this may not seem to be that big of a deal, but it's indicative of a larger theme. Marianne felt like everyone was working against her, and she knew Sean must be feeling that way too. Sean did end up at a rehab facility that month. He completed the program and was back to the dilemma of needing a supportive place to live. His attempts at a fresh start in Pittsburgh hadn't really worked out. Halfway houses in Altoona hadn't worked out either. And so instead, he thought he'd try a different kind of sober house. Sean's uncle was seven years clean from alcoholism. He's family, and so he cares for Sean, and he understands sobriety. And so in July of 2018, Sean moves in with his uncle Bob. Sean's uncle told me that he has let a lot of people stay with him as they navigate recovery. But this time, it didn't work out as the family had hoped. Sean, in particular, wasn't wasn't in trouble. I didn't feel confident that Sean was really wanting to recover. 
The audio quality of this interview is not great, but his uncle told me that he didn't feel Sean was really wanting to recover. And he said that's because Sean wanted to be able to drink alcohol as long as he stayed away from drugs. But his uncle didn't agree with that. He really believed that alcohol was a problem, whereas I, as a covered alcoholic, know that it doesn't matter if drugs. Marianne saw red flags pretty quickly. The 4th of July was coming, and I kind of thought that Sean would spend that time with us. Instead, he went out with a girlfriend and some friends to watch the fireworks is what he told my brother. How did you find out? My detective work I start doing and <laughs> just started unraveling things and figuring out who and where and asking questions until I finally, you know, have people looking on Facebook and stuff because I wasn't on it. And there's pictures posted. So, yeah, the behaviors definitely started to really, I mean, they were there. And also, Sean had been going to this outpatient counseling group. It was only for drug abuse. They didn't specialize or offer any help with his trauma. But then that fell away, too. She suspected that Sean was using. She went to her brother's house, she picked him up, and drove him to his new probation officer for a drug test. Now that he was back in Blair County, Dave Morante was no longer in the picture. I probably broke every traffic violation I could on the way there because I didn't want to stop because I didn't want him to get out of the car. And I pulled into the parking lot of probation and he just looked at me and said, I can't go in there because I've used. She knew that if she made him go in and fail the test, he'd go right to jail. So instead, she drove him to a drug and alcohol counseling center and asked for a crisis session. I dropped him off. He said he was going to smoke a cigarette and I left because I had to go to work. And then... He got back to me and he just said, I waited for like an hour and a half and he was busy, so I left. Where did he spend the night? He told me he spent it with a friend, so I don't really know. A few days later, one of her brothers found a few of Sean's belongings hidden at a relative's house. I don't know if he had anywhere to go, but he certainly didn't want anybody knowing he was homeless. Text messages from Sean's phone during that time period show that Mike and Marianne were trying to get him to come home. Sean was silent for several days until finally giving in. I always kind of felt like I had to try to protect him from the worst that could happen out there. So yeah, I always did want to say, let's just bring him home. We ended up picking him up at a pizza shop. But it didn't last long. Marianne and Mike were laying in bed and realized... I could hear voices. They could hear a woman, someone they'd never met before, in Sean's room. So I got up and I went over and then, you know, they were yeah, they were in there talking and laying there. And of course, Michael just went off. I kind of lost it on them and kind of threw her out. I mean, she probably thought we were crazy, but I just like, what the hell? So they, they both left. I mean, she looked like we scared the crap out of her, and she left. And, he, I mean, the two of them left together. The chaos continues for a few days. Marianne suspected that Sean began staying with an old neighbor, a guy who Sean remained friends with, a guy with a family who was sympathetic and took him in. Meanwhile, Mike and Marianne are trying so hard to maintain some kind of normalcy, if not just for themselves, then for their other son. They went to a festival with Josh and Caitlin. It was supposed to be a nice weekend getaway, but Marianne could never really escape. What do you think you were like during this time in social settings? Like, were you just completely 
oh, like a robot, like sort of only there in like your physical self. I mean, there's no way in a mentally like you were mentally participating in life. No. I mean, I think that I became very good at faking for Josh when we were around him. Another thing, I mean, I don't know. I guess we, we learned to play the game because, you know, people don't want to talk about it. So for the most part, I think I did pretty well. But yeah, Josh, I'm sure he he knew because the phone calls and I kept leaving the restaurant. We were outside on the patio and I kept going out further so I could talk to him. And yeah, I mean, that weekend was definitely a big downward spiral. Downward spiral because the next morning, Marianne is awakened to a hysterical and bizarre phone call from Sean. What did you do? And I said, what do you mean, what did I do, Sean? I'm in Pittsburgh. You just woke me up at 6.42 in the morning. He said, well, the PO was just here. I was up on the roof, and they were down in the alley, and it just wasn't making any sense to me. So it was like he was coming in and out of something, but the worst was to come. Later that day, the woman who they had found in their house, the one that they kicked out, she contacted them and asked if she could come over and talk. She was worried about him. She was telling me about what he was doing and that those were definitely hallucinations and he was using the crystal meth. And she said that he wasn't really making any sense. He was, he was kept staring out the window and saying, they're coming for me. And did you bring them here and all that stuff? So I think she was worried about him having a bad experience on it. She didn't even know what to think. So while she was here, he ended up showing up here. Michael went out. I sent him out to see what was going on and talk to him. Mike brought him to the back of the house, to the garden in their backyard, where the fence gives them privacy. I'll never forget that because I remember when he finally did show up. He showed up, he was walking, and like down the side of our yard along the fence, and I was just kind of walking with him. He was just paranoid so paranoid he was looking all around him up and down just smoking cigarettes one after the other and he would like kneel down and jump back up and just constantly like be turning his head back and forth and i'll never forget i no, i was so scared and hurt actually looking at my son and doing that and knowing the kind of pain you know that he was going through and he was scared to death i could tell it, it just it killed me to watch it somewhere in that my sister i think she called or text or something and i told her that we had you know had him here that we had, he'd come back around and that he was in a bad way so she took it upon herself and she drove out and the girl said well Maybe I can come out and help talk him into going into treatment with you. So we did. We all went out. He was out back, um, up against the side, of the back of the fence. And he looked like I've never seen him. It was almost like a wild look into his eyes that he just, if he wanted to close him, he couldn't. He was sick, physically sick, thrown up. Dark circles, awful. He just looked awful. And he said that he had been up for five days and could not sleep. Marianne's sister, Deb, who had always been close to Sean, walked over. Him and I just had a kind of bond. 
that he didn't have with anybody else as far as his aunts or uncles go. I don't I don't know why, but it, we just had that bond. She had tried in the last couple of months to get through to him. I told him, I said that I understood what he was going through as far as the um, thing that happened to him in, at State College. Because I said it happened to me when I was about 11 or 12. And I had never told anybody. But today, she took a different approach. He was sitting on a chair, and I went over, and I put my arms around him, and I said, Sean, when are you going to stop this stuff? It's not that easy, Aunt Deb. It's not easy. And I just said, you're killing yourself, because I can't help it. I can't help it. And I, I just, I said, Sean, you've got to stop. Aunt Deb, if it was that easy, we'd all stop. I said, I don't want to, I don't want to see you at a funeral. Everybody was convincing him that it was the best thing to do for him was to go back into treatment. I mean, I didn't care where it was. I just knew that it was a Sunday. I had to get him in somewhere. That was my mind. I'm thinking I got to get him in detox. The closest detox program is a pyramid facility. They're a very large organization of rehabs across several states. But of course, when you call the pyramid, you're getting like a, a call center. You're not even getting the local. You're just getting a call center. So Michael's on the phone. He's trying to get him in. We're trying to convince him, the girl and my sister and I. And, you know, we're scrambling. I'm telling my husband, just, just get a bag packed. We got, you know, and he, Sean's arguing with us that they're not going to help him. And, you know, he's not going. And finally, Michael got Pyramid to agree to take him right away. And Sean's stalling and saying he needs to pack stuff. And he's angry and he's, you know definitely coming off of stuff. So he probably was even worse, you know, just needing to get high. And we're just trying to keep a cool head. But they had to talk to Sean. So we're doing all this as we're on the phone with them to do an intake over the phone to be able to accept him. Throwing bag, all his stuff in his bag that he would need and not need. And he's talking to them, talking to us, being angry. We finally get it all together. And my sister went her way and the girl left and we get him in the car and we start driving out to this facility and he's on the phone and we are probably half a mile, not even from the facility and the phone disconnects. And so you call back and you don't get the same person. Oh, geez. He calls back Michael and he gets a different person and he starts through the process and he said, no, 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 you don't understand. We were already on the phone with somebody and they said, and then he's like, well, He's shaking his head like he's just, and I'm like, what? And he said, they said there's no beds. I said, how is that possible in 10 minutes? We were driving there, not even 10 minutes. We were on the phone and there was a bed. So I took the phone and I'm arguing with this person. And they're just like, well, no, well, I don't know, but we don't have one. We might have one tomorrow in Pittsburgh. I'm thinking, you got to be kidding me. (laughs) I just couldn't believe what we were you know, and he, he's sitting in the back seat, like, sick. And so I, I'm, like, calling in every person that I can think of to help me. Just reaching out to friends that think that might have some sort of a best-case scenario. I call a friend, and she knows a doctor that um, Sean went to, just a, a primary care. And she tells me that his advice was for me to take him to the emergency room. And so I start driving and he's back there saying he's not going and I'm driving towards the hospital. 
And he just kept saying, well, I'm not going in. It's a waste of time. I'm not going. They're not going to do anything. And I just, I just said, then where do you want me to dump you? Because you're not coming back to the house like this. I don't know what else to do with you. So we pull into across from the hospital. There's a little plaza there and a Wendy's restaurant. And we pull in there. And my, the friend that I had been talking to called me back and said, um, how'd you make out? And I said, well, we're sitting in, in the parking lot down here across from the hospital and he won't go. And she and her husband know because they also have a son that suffers and has been in and out of stuff in the system. So they offer to come talk to him. Michael and I walk away from him. And her husband talks to him and as a parent who understands it, but yet somebody different that it's not us. So they finally convince him that's the right thing to do, which took probably about 45 minutes or more. Part of the reason Sean was fighting this ER visit so much is that he believed they could report his drug use to his probation officer, which would have likely landed him back in jail. In reality... Pennsylvania and most other states now have a law on the books. It's called the Good Samaritan Law, and it gives immunity to drug users when they seek medical attention. But Sean didn't know that. He's here to have his life saved, not go to jail. And even without that hurdle in their way, the hospital staff is ill-equipped to deal with this situation. According to Marianne, they told the family the best they could do was make him an appointment for an outpatient drug counseling session. And then they began the discharge process. I'm like, okay, (laughs) what's that going to do? What do I do today? What do I do tonight? So when the doctor came in, And he just turned around and looked at me and said, do you realize that this is a hospital, not a hotel? I was fuming. I just, I wanted to scream. I wanted to cry. It's not fair. It's not right. Because all that really did was hurt. And it really fueled Sean's idea that people don't really care, no matter who you are, even if you are a doctor. Well, in this case, do you think, I mean, he was working within the constraints of what the medical system is allowed to, I mean, they can't just let him stay because he's in some sort of danger. Like if you kind of equate it to like, if you were a battered wife and you went into the hospital with a black eye, the hospital couldn't just admit you because if you go home, you might get beaten again. I mean, your black eye isn't enough to keep you there overnight. Right. I get that, but if UPMC is... Marianne explained to me that she had at least hoped for something called a comfort pack, something that emergency rooms often have or hand out. They are pre-made packs of comfort drugs, and they are designed to ease the painful process of detoxing, at least until someone can get help. They're to help with the nausea, to help with calm their nerves and all this stuff. At least if there would have been something to give us hope that night. To get through the night. Something to get through the night. But it doesn't sound like they really had any... I mean, like, I don't think insurance would have paid for him to stay the night just because he was withdrawing. No. no. I guess I just looked at it as, like I said, not only not did they not give us anything, he had They to, were mean about yeah, it. he had to add insult to injury. Like, I mean, I wanted to scream up and said, really? You think I'm so stupid? I don't know what the H stands for? Ugh, dummy me. You know, or... I just wanted to lose it. I really did. But I just knew that as a parent, that wasn't going to help anything. 
they ended up taking Sean home, hoping to get him through the night and into a facility the next day. But he was belligerent, dope-sick, and still hallucinating. He ended up leaving with somebody, somebody Marianne knew was probably going to help him get high, but that guy even ended up being weirded out by Sean's strange behavior. And he calls me and tells me he wanted him the fuck out of here because he didn't know what the hell he was on. And so he was going to just dump him in the street somewhere. The woman who was there earlier, who started out by getting kicked out of the house, then helping the family corral him in the backyard, she ends up saving Sean that night, picking him up and bringing him back home. We get him back in the house and upstairs, and of course he starts heaving and like he's going to be sick again. We put him in the bed, gave him a bucket. Uh, I, I didn't know what else to do because I'd never detoxed anybody. Right, that sounds awful. You know, it was intense. I mean, he's dropping the bucket on the floor in the middle of the night. His phone's dropping. I mean, we did not sleep at all. In the morning, after some negotiating with the Pyramid Rehab Facility, Marianne gets someone to come pick Sean up and take him for a proper detox. But he is so sick from withdrawal at this point, she can't even get him out of the bathroom. Because he couldn't get off the toilet. He was having such dry heaves and diarrhea and everything else. And the guy's out in the driveway waiting and said, well, is he like, okay? Is, is he coming? I said, yeah, he's just, you know. He went, but the roller coaster did not stop. After four days, he self-removed, angry that they were tapering his Suboxone. I honestly think by then, his mental state, his addiction, there's no way five days or three days was going to be enough for that kid to detox. Marianne found out that he walked out when she called one night. Staff said he's not here. We don't have anybody by that name. Do you know who got him? Oh, he could have walked from there. Ten minutes to go anywhere. He would. I don't know where he went. I know I text him at 9.30 p.m. and I said, so it's pretty sad that you gave up everything. And his... Um, text back to me at 931 was he gave up nothing because he was trying to go elsewhere. Elsewhere, like a different facility? Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, that was the last anything that I heard from him that night, which was a Friday night. The next morning, Marianne texted Sean asking, quote, are you still with us? Like as in, was he still alive? Yeah, yeah. That's about where it got to at that point. Oh, wow. You know, he used to always say goodnight, you know, no matter where he was, unless he didn't have a phone and stuff. But things were just so ugly. And so, yeah, that was my text. Are you still with us? And he didn't answer me until 928. He said, yeah, I am. Do you think he understood what was going through your mind? Or do you think he was kind of like, you're like approaching that kind of a question like you were nagging him or do you think he understood where your level of frustration at this point if i read the text and i read some of the stuff that came later i think he did i think i think he realized himself at, at a certain points that he was in trouble just by things he said this was really chaotic yeah, yeah. And, and other people that he would text and what they what would he'd say he was in and out you know all he wanted was the drug but he always came around or answered at some point and reached back out. 
So I know that there was that desire. I just think that it got so deep for him, he just didn't know what to do. The text messages between Sean and his mom that day, they show how the family was stuck. Stuck in an impossible position, where they didn't want to enable his addiction, but they also couldn't stomach writing him off either. I actually think you prefer that we be done with you. It's easier for you with us out of the picture. No, no, that's not what I prefer. Sean tells Marianne he's driving to West Virginia with a friend to pick up a car. Oh, Sean, what are you into? What are you talking about? When will you start realizing that you need family, not these fly-by-night friends? The next morning, when Marianne checks in on him, he says that he's working to get into a rehab facility in Pittsburgh, one that he had been to before. Marianne replies with a long, heartfelt text message that illuminates her deep, prolonged struggle to get him help without enabling or minimizing the severity of the situation. As much as I wish you could be the Sean we love and long for, we face the fact that you don't want that person. And then she makes a prediction. The wedding is getting so close, and here we are. You still in the same state as you've been for years now. I wonder how we will ever get through the celebrations that day without our hearts being shattered. Somehow, some way, I have to stop this maddening desire to save you from yourself and try saving myself first. Trying to live again. I don't even know where to start or who we have become as a family. I just know that we have become as sick as you. I beg you to allow me to see you again, to erase that vision of how you looked Sunday night into Monday. Please don't let that be how I see you in my mind. Five hours later, Sean replies, I'm going to live a good life for the 40th time I'm trying to get in somewhere. Despite his multiple relapses, Sean was actually always trying to, quote, get in somewhere. In fact, part of the reason he had so few belongings, why he lived out of a suitcase, is that he was constantly checking into places. He was only out, so to speak, for about a quarter of his time that summer. Sean seemed to want to get better but he didn't seem to be able to conquer his demons long enough to do it. Still, there was forward motion. This time, he wanted to go to a facility called Turning Point. It's in rural Pennsylvania, about an hour north of Pittsburgh. The facility sent someone to come pick him up. And actually, that's the first that I had met. Steve. Steve Perlstein shows up. He was a driver for them at Turning Point. Remember Steve? Who told us about the rampant drug abuse at the state-run halfway house? Yeah, Steve. He was clean now and working for Turning Point as a technician and driver. So that's who ended up showing up. How ironic was that? Here I saw his name on the board coming in, so I requested to go pick him up. Before Steve and I met at the diner, I drove by Turning Point to see what it looked like. It's perched up on a hill on a two-lane road in a rural, hilly area. I parked my car in a lot across the street to get a better look. I could see an outdoor pavilion where men were hanging out, mostly in sweats, mingling. Then a police car pulled in. The officer went inside, and a few minutes later he emerged, just as an ambulance was pulling up. I watched as they filled out some paperwork. I later learned that someone overdosed. 
two months after my visit, the facility closed rather abruptly. Online, it doesn't state a reason, but Marianne said that a representative told her that it had issues with water quality. The company that owned it declined to comment for this podcast. Regardless, three days into Sean's time at Turning Point, Marianne says that a staffer there told her that Sean was at the wrong place, that what he needed was trauma counseling and they didn't have it. She did tell me point blank that she felt bad, that she didn't really have time to devote to him, that they were short-staffed. So they were filling out the paperwork to transfer him back to a pyramid facility that did have trauma counseling. But this transfer commenced during his detox. His detox was not yet complete. He'd only been there for three days, and detox is usually at least a week. And so when he arrived at the new place... They didn't have the paperwork to do it, so they weren't going to do it. They were done. He was just cold turkey. So he left. He walked right back out. Pyramid did not respond to my request for comment, but the paperwork between the two facilities confirms that Sean had three days left to detox, and he didn't get it. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services has guidance about this. They say that there are significant risks associated with the withdrawal of opioids. Specifically, they say that opioids should never be tapered quickly because they are likely to lead to psychological distress pain, and thoughts of suicide. But once again, money determines care, and so Sean does not get a proper detox. He left the same day. Yep, he left the same day. In one text message, he writes, You obviously don't know what it's like to be dope sick. I can barely fucking move throwing up and to go straight into a rehab dope sick. There is no way any fucking addict can do that. So no, it is not so fucking unbearable. Comfort meds don't fucking work to be able to be sick in there all day for group sick. So now he's back on the street. Well, I didn't know where he was. He got somebody somehow to bring him back to Altoona. I'm just thinking this was just like a roller coaster ride at this point. Sean goes back to Cove Forge, to the place where he last completed a 20-day treatment. But when Marianne called to check in on him... I was told he left with another kid. I made a choice to leave because everyone was getting high there all around. People getting tested and kicked out left and right. And people passing tests that should have failed and walking around messed up there. So I questioned the, the person at the facility about it. And she said, well, there was a situation here, but you can't keep drugs out completely. But that's it. In a statement responding to my questions, Cove Forge said that services are voluntary and patients can leave at any time. The director, who emailed with me, called Marianne's story about drugs inside the facility unsubstantiated allegations. And she said any reports of drug use inside the facility are dealt with immediately. She said they have a very strong track record of successful treatment. So in none of this is he defensive, like, I don't need this, or I don't want to be. No. In fact, his next text to his mom is, Gotta keep trying. Even the texts he sent to a buddy, another guy who was struggling with addiction, back up his story. I left Go Forge early because everyone was getting high there. Some kid left too, and this is where he lives at. You went back there? You getting high now? Yeah, I went back and I did three bags since I've been out. I'm done, bro. I've had enough. I'm so tired of running out of stores and shit and waking up sick every day. 
this run I've been on this past year has been the worst. I can't do it no more. Yeah, I'm done too, bro. I only did three in a two days period to stay off sick and to finish my subutex taper out. I'm going to a place in Brookline. Are they working with you on the money? Yeah, I'm, I'm paying half. Do you know if there are any more beds? I'll find out. In the meantime, Sean calls Steve Pearlstein again. He was in a lot of trouble. He didn't give me, like, all the details, but, like, I don't want to say begged, but, like, begged. Like, he had enough. When a grown man calls you and is crying to you, like, I need your help. Like, please help me. Like, get me in there. Can you get me in there? Sean's actual text message was, Can you please get me and take me to rehab, bro? I'm begging you. I'm going to end up dying out here or catching a charge. You might be wondering, where was his probation officer in all of this? He is on probation and should not be wandering the streets aimlessly. Well, according to his family, Sean's new probation officer, the one assigned to him after he moved back to Altoona, never actually met with him, so there was no real accounting for him. According to the text messages on his phone, he's crashing with some people in a motel room somewhere while he looks for a ride to get back to Turning Point. But even if he does go back, Marianne knows that he's stuck in this recurring cycle. He's high when he checks into a facility, and so he would get dope sick real quick. The detox timeline is a few days, maybe a week max, which means he'll get violently ill leaving him desperate and angry and more apt to leave early. I have never been dope sick, but I have been sick, violently sick. And I'm sure you have too. Those times when you are praying to the toilet seat, begging God, please let it stop. As it's been described to me, imagine the worst possible sick you've ever been and amplify it with hallucinations and tremors and headaches. Is there any way to like, mandate i mean i guess is there any way to keep him from leaving so to to put him in a facility and not allow him to walk out nope there's no ability to do that not unless it's court ordered yes the court can order that but he could still walk out like the facility themselves is not gonna lock him in the, the best case scenario is they're gonna call and tell your po hey he left so it's not like a mental health institution where like you literally cannot leave yeah no you can't you can walk out it's not the same Knowing that Sean won't get a proper detox and will probably walk away from any place he checks into, Marianne feels she has no choice but to try some tough love and just make Sean figure it out. That night, Sean texts her. I don't know what I'm going to do tonight. I said, well, I hope you stay safe with this. This is the life that you keep choosing, and it will get worse. He said, the life life I I keep choosing. I'm an addict. You fucking think I chose to be like this? No, I didn't. You just think it's so damn easy to quit. Well, sorry to tell you that if it was that easy, the world wouldn't be full of fucking addicts. And yeah, me too. I need six. I'm dope sick. I'm about to be carrying around a bag of luggage and going to who knows where. Well, leaving Wi-Fi. Text you when I get to Wi-Fi again. If I do, I don't know. I need six at least, please. We felt like we really needed to draw a tough line that night, Michael and I. And I said, nope, treatment is all I said I will support you in. Something you constantly walk away from and refuse to do the hard work. I never once said it was easy, just possible, with the right steps. And I pray God watches over you. 
I mean, that seems like a really reasonable answer. You know, I know that you look back on this and you think you were really frustrated and maybe at times too frustrated with him, but that does seem like a reasonable assessment of what was going on, that you were frustrated he kept walking out and you knew it was not going to be an easy thing, but that he had to, you know, he had to make, take some personal responsibility, right? And like do the work to get through the rehab. I mean, that doesn't seem like an unreasonable answer. It isn't. Do you look back on it like in a different way? I do. I look at it how I know that, like I said, it's some of the conversations later and stuff that how he felt like they haven't given me any more help. They didn't follow up. I don't have anything or anybody. So he's jumping from place to place. No counselor, no nothing. I think at, at that point in his head, he had to be looking at it as at least it's a place to, to be alive. But I don't think he ever thought that he was going to get the help that he desperately needed with the trauma, not in the facilities he kept going in and out of. You know, if you take the trauma out of the picture here, I think that some people will will just question why the motive wasn't there to get clean. But the underlying trauma, which is always, you know, going to be there and be an issue as long as it's not dealt with properly, is the reason that you believe he kept going back and using, right? Yeah. I do. Or do you think it was... He was deep by that point. The addiction had, like, really taken over. Oh, absolutely. Completely. So, I mean, I guess if you had to, like, look back, do you think that it was mostly a problem of addiction at this point or mostly a problem of the trauma at this point? Oh, I think the addiction at that point, for sure. I honestly believe if the trauma would have been addressed years prior when we asked when we tried. Look at all the years less. There was that possibility that he wouldn't have the drugs in his system and you would have been able to reach him because he would have had a clearer head, a longer period of stability and treatment could have made all the difference in the world. Instead, he's in a motel somewhere. In his own words, quote, the middle of nowhere, dope sick and stressed the fuck out. He had called me, said he was sitting outside of Sheets in New Stanton, Pennsylvania, and he had nowhere to go. He reaches out to his Aunt Deb. I was devastated. So dummy me, I went ahead and booked them a room for two nights. I told Mary Ann, I texted her, oh my God, I thought she was going to kill me. I mean, I was mad at her. I was mad as hell that she did it. I mean, I did. I lost it. She said, just went all over me. If he dies over there, it's your fault. I was just praying to God, don't let anything happen to him, because Marianne will never forgive me. Marianne decides that her sister should see exactly what state of mind Sean is in. And I said, we're going for a road trip tomorrow. She said, what do you mean? I said, we're going to go get him. I said, so don't tell him. It's going to be a surprise. Early the next morning, they drive to the motel that Aunt Deb bought for Sean, a mini intervention of sorts, to try to get him back into a facility. We're in the parking lot. And she said, what are you going to do anyway? (laughs) What's your plan? I said, to be honest with you, I don't have a damn plan at all. I said, so whatever I say and whatever I do, I am winging it. And you just back me up with whatever I say. I really opened my eyes. I just couldn't believe it. He just was not the Sean that I was used to seeing. He, he looked 
horrible. Really? Oh, he was totally in withdrawal big time. He was angry as hell that I was there. I can still picture him sprawled out on the bed. He had a T-shirt on and he was just so out of it. And then he started whipping stuff around when she kept telling him to get up and let's go, let's go. There were two beds in the motel room, and it was clear that someone else's things were over on the other side. There was a duffel bag and that that we knew wasn't his. So he's just staying with random people? Yeah. There was a random ID card on the bed, a crack pipe in the bathroom, needles in the drawers. Marianne tells Sean to get up and get in the car. Then somebody knocks at the door, and I opened it. And this short little guy standing there. Some kid came in. So I'm, I'm just going to use the bathroom real quick. And I think we shocked the hell out of him because he just used the bathroom and then left. And I look at Sean and I said, what the hell is that? Is that the one that's staying here? No, that's not him. So I have no idea who that guy was. I said, we're leaving. I don't know who this guy is or where he's at. But if you have a way to get in touch with him, you better tell him his shit's going to be out in the hallway because this room's shut down now. So he packed up all that other kid stuff and put it in the, in the backpack, and we just set it outside the room. And, and I said, does he have a key? And he says, no, I have the only key. So I took the key, and, and we were hoping and praying that nobody else could get back in that room because that was on my credit card. At one point, he was so mad. He goes, I'll just take your phone, and I'll break it. And, I mean, she just was looking at me like, oh, my God, what now? In the past, Sean had been very careful to hide the gory details of his addiction from his family. But today is different. He does something he has never, ever done before. Something that shows how desperately bad his situation had become. I can't, I can't ride all that way. You're just going to have to take me to my dealer. It's, you know, I can just meet him. Had there ever been a point in the past where you saw him actually use, like, physically saw him using? No. Never. He always hit it. He would lock himself in the bathroom. I'm just imagining what it would have been like, you know, like that you have to, you have to watch this. That was probably, like I said, this was the worst that I had ever. And, you know, my sister had never seen anything like I had seen with anger fits or anything like that. But this was definitely something that I feel she was not prepared for. Yeah, I, I told her, I said, it really opened my eyes. I, I just, I had never seen him like that. I was really, really devastated there. But yeah, I just could not believe the shape he was in. Realizing that Sean is unlikely to go with them willingly, Marianne shifts to her backup plan. I hated lying because I am not a person. I, I hate it. I just detest it. I said, here's the deal. If you think I'm a fool... You got another thing coming. Because I had this all set up. I had the sheriff's department from this area sitting right around the corner. If he doesn't see you get in the car with us to go, then you go with him. And then you're on your own. Whatever the system does with you, that's how it goes. That's how this is going down. That was not true. There was no sheriff waiting. But Sean believed it, and it worked. He finally got up. They emptied the room and locked it up. And as they were walking out, Marianne looks at her son and says, Don't you want to be around for everything after this wedding? I don't even know how, like, how, how am I supposed to bury you? I don't have money put back for that. Is that what you want us to do? You want us to bury our child? 
Sean did not miss a beat. He just shot me a look. He just said, I'm going to be fine. I've been doing this for nine years and I'm still here. I'm going to be fine. They finally got on the road. He gets in the back seat and I had it all ready for him. I mean, I had a blanket, a pillow, a bucket. And I just thought the only thing to do at this point is just start talking about something and hope that he falls asleep. He didn't really say anything until we got closer. He wanted us to stop. And he said, I got to get rid of this. I said, get rid of what? And he whips a needle out that he had in his pocket. Instead, he walks back in the, in the grass and is breaking it and, and smashing it up with his feet. And then it was almost like he was paranoid. They pull up to Turning Point, and of course, once again, there's a hang-up with his state medical insurance. And of course, once again, it's related to his detox. They aren't going to pay for it. Sean loses it, creating a scene in the parking lot. Steve Perlstein came out to try to help. I was like, well, I'll get you in. Well, me and Marianne fought. I mean, for probably a good couple hours. Not with each other, but with, like, turning. I'm fighting with my job, with the nurses at my job. We're getting on the phone with the insurance company. She's calling the insurance company. You know, like, listen, this kid's begging. He's out there. He said he's, he's going to end up dead if he doesn't get in here. The way, the way that it was set up, they can't help him because he had left a detox to come there. And they were saying that there's no way and he's gone through withdrawals again. We only pay for a detox. One time. Okay, so he was detoxing from opiates. So go to the bar and get drunk, show up drunk. Now you're asking the insurance company to cover you for alcohol treatment, not for opiate treatment. So it's a completely separate... Box to check? Yeah. Yeah, he said, and it's sad to say, he said, but there's a bar down the street. If you take him down there and you get him shit-ass drunk and bring him back... He'll take them. It's the loophole. So like, hey, can't get in? Well, go get him drunk and bring him back. I said, that's just, no, I'm not doing that. I, I just am not doing that. How did you guys end up getting him into Turning Point? We just begged. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It, I mean, a combination of her saying she's going to get her lawyers involved, a combination of me saying, like, like, look, he needs it. I'm quitting if you don't take him in. Like, I just said to the person, I know that you're probably just the middle person answering the phone, but I need somebody. This is a crisis emergency situation. I picked him up and scraped him out of a motel. He is in a bad way. He was begging me to take him to go get heroin. I said, so point blank, I'm just going to tell you, if I leave this facility with my son and he dies, I'm coming after the state for this because you are denying him something that I can tell you with all my being that he needs. And the guy said he would call the facility, and they would take care of the detox. So I won that battle. A nurse comes out, and she said, well, the insurance said that they would cover it, but unfortunately, the doctor here said that she's not going to do it. And I said, what do you mean she's not going to do it? Wait, what? And her reasoning to me was that she thinks that he's just there, because he's just jumping from place to place at this point to get detoxed because he can't afford the drug. I just said, well, I'll tell you what, this young man, and he wasn't standing right there, is a victim of Jerry Sandusky's and he has never gotten the proper treatment yet. So by God, if she wants to do anything, she better do something now, or I want her name and I will make sure that she never works in a facility again after this. That's how angry I am right now. 
And she just looked kind of shocked and said, okay, I'll be right back. She went in and came back out and said, the doctor has changed her mind. She will go ahead and treat him. Pulling the Sandusky card was something that Marianne had done from time to time. She did it many years prior when asking the judge and district attorney to let him into drug court. She did it during his first stay at rehab and many subsequent ones afterward. She told probation officers, cops, the insurance company, lawyers. And it wasn't about getting favors for her son. Marianne told people so that they would treat Sean the way that she felt all addicts should be treated inside these facilities, whether it be the hospital or rehab, court or jail. And she wanted them to see him the way that she felt he should be seen, which was as a human, a man who was struggling with the trauma of being abused as a child. But many attempts, and nine years later, here we are, in a parking lot, in absolute crisis, life or death, and she's still begging for help. And thanks to that begging, Sean gets into detox at turning point. But from recent history, Marianne knows that she has only a few days to figure out her next move. She knows what she wants to do. She calls a psychologist named Alicia Chambers. For the last few weeks, Marianne has been quietly working with Chambers to craft a letter to Penn State asking them to revisit their original plan for Sean. Before that last-minute switch in late 2017, that switch that ended up sending Sean to the ranch where he got a toothache and everything fell apart. I write to request a meeting or a phone call regarding needed treatment for a 26-year-old victim of Jerry Sandusky. Chambers writes that Penn State should reconsider their original plan for Sean and send him to a facility called The Meadows in Wickenburg, Arizona. The young man, like so many victims of sexual abuse, medicated his emotional pain and shame with illegal drugs. In time, he developed a serious addiction to heroin. Chambers writes that Sean's treatment so far has been unhelpful at best, and that the Meadows is a much better equipped place to handle cases like Sean. They routinely treat both child sexual trauma and comorbid addiction. It is a renowned, highly specialized program. And she doesn't hold back about what might happen if Sean doesn't get the help that he needs. It has been suggested to them that the media would find the family's story compelling. I feel sure that Penn State would much rather see this young man well-treated than be subjected to more media challenges or a lawsuit upon the young man's death. I await your advice and suggestion at your first opportunity. Thank you. Yeah, I was out of the store, actually. I was at the grocery store, and she called, and she said, okay, we have them. They're going to accept them. That was like a dream. I mean, we just, I, I looked at the facility, and to look at people that were on the panel, the board, all that stuff. This guy wrote a book on how 
sexual abuse changes your the chemical makeup of your brain and then you add on top of it addiction these people really really get it this is gonna be it this is the golden key we've been waiting for that's how we felt The Mayor of Maple Avenue is written and produced by me, Sarah Gannam, in partnership with Penn Live and Meadowlark Media. Additional writing was done by Carl Scott at Meadowlark Media. We could not have done this project without funding from the Fund for Investigative Journalism and the Pulitzer Center. Our associate producers are Tori Whitten, Sarah Ruberg, and Ethan Schreier. Additional reporting was done by Charlie Thompson, Aaron Kasinitz, and Andrea Keckley. The executive producers are Kate Barron, Burke Noel, and Teresa Bonner for PenLive, and Carl Scott for Meadowlark Media. The Mayor of Maple Avenue was edited by James Sullivan and Gabriel Rojas at WUFT in Gainesville, Florida, by Jake Gloth at Cedar Production, Martin Boutros at Penn Studios, and Stephen Smith at Meadowlark Media. Sound design was done by Jesse Pearlstein, Alexander Ritchie, Martin Boutros, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our mixing and mastering engineer was Robin Wise. Our theme music and much of the score was composed by Pete Redman, with additional music by Alexander Ritchie, Jesse Pearlstein, and Ryan Ross-Smith. Our team also includes production assistants Megan Lavie-Heaton, Joe Hermit, Sarah Tantawi, photographer Sean Simmers, and consultants John Hammontree and Neville Elder. Our legal counsel is Richard Bernstein. The podcast cover art was designed by Andy Ross. All of the voiceovers you hear in this series are read directly from original documents, such as medical records, text messages, newspaper clips, and other documents made available to us by the Sinisi family and their attorneys at the law firm of Spencer Custer. The part of Sean Sinisi is voiced by James Sullivan. In addition, Jake Gloth read the part of Sean's friend. To see extras like slideshows, interactive spaces, and written transcripts, visit our website at www.themayorofmapleavenue.com. 